0: Hi Serena, how are you? Hello,
1: how you been?
2: Good, good. I ate so much. Hi Victoria,
1: you ate so much. Imagine that
2: on
3: a vacation.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Way too much. Hi Victoria, how are you? Well,
3: I'm fine, but I'm feeling the pressure again of the (laughs) people. Oh.
1: Okay. Yeah, beautiful,
3: we're beautiful,
1: beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. Well, this is going to be a fun one. It's a clubhouse isn't the same without you, Katerina.
2: Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you. It's also the same thing when you're not other room. Hey, Jamie, I'm trying to bring up also can anyone paint a link? Oh, there it is. Oh, it just switched. I don't know. It wasn't at the same spot for me, I think.
1: How have you been, Victoria? I haven't seen you in a while.
0: Sorry. I'm
3: navigating. Yeah, I had to navigate back. <laughs> <laughs> um really well i was in california with family and i just got back last night and then yeah then went straight into the classroom today Mm. where there um some teachers are double masked explaining that we have high risk again and none of the students are masked not oh no yeah so i double mask too
1: Mm.
3: it's yeah it's really fun um trying to teach through a double mask (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's
0: okay.
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, so there's more, more COVID again? Uh, yes. More yeah,
3: I know um, oh. several people. I know Um, four people right now with COVID in different countries and states who are just diagnosed recently within the past week. But otherwise, uh California was really fun, <laughs> lots of water lots of rain.
1: other than you know recurring pandemics
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, there's a lot of beach time you got, right
3: mm, lots of beach time, yeah, and it's funny, um it's raining, It was raining when I got up this morning, <laughs> raining much of the day, but that's okay, you know, trees, water, rain, it's good. How are you doing, though, Serena?
1: Oh, well, I, I got one of those traditional bugs. so I was out for a yeah. couple of days. But um, that was just coming back from business travel. Um, and I did enjoy a weekend, and I started writing code. And I always have a good time when I start writing code again, so I'm excited.
3: Okay, that's good you're happy and busy happy and busy yeah co-driving nice um yeah i popped in a little bit to some of the rooms that you were in for like 12 hours during the week just to see what the heck was going on (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah there was a a
1: few random (laughs) walkabouts (laughs) Yeah. yeah
3: they were intense
1: in a nice way I, I didn't talk about astrocytes and all I know, all of that's them. why
3: I left. <laughs> <laughs> it was all conceptual and things. Yeah.
1: So. yeah, some of them had a lot of ists and isms. Yeah, it was
3: wh- wisdom. you mean? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well know that like I you know, know it's a joke. Yeah, well, of course.
1: Where there's isms and isms, there's often wisdom. <laughs>
3: right, yeah, and that was, it was so anti-Glial that I just couldn't
1: hang. <laughs> <laughs> well, Glia, they had their moments, but at least I'm writing code to help study Glia, so that's mm. fun. Ooh, I can't
3: wait to hear more at some point, at the appropriate point.
1: Well, yeah, it's, um, it's a work in progress, so it's uh, going to be fun.
3: Hello Jamie.
1: Good evening everybody, how are you? I'm sorry to hear that you have
3: to do that double masking thing Victoria, that's just mostly so frustrating. Um, yeah, it's, 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 the feeling is just scary. <laughs> that's really, I'm, I'm so happy to mask up, you know, people express so much frustration about masking and I wish they'd just can it. Um. So I will never complain. I was actually glad to see a masked person. It's just you know, it's is. The woman said it's on the rise. It is. And so just put on the damn mask. So yeah, it's just it's just more scary. And then it's also that until it um you know, when you then when you inhale the mask inhales too and it sticks to your mouth and so <laughs> it's just yeah, it worked out. It's it's fine. But thank you.
0: Yeah.
3: I got one of those box
1: of fifty and ninety fives off Amazon for really cheap and they, they hold their form pretty good. And um whenever I, I but I hardly ever go out, so
3: <laughs> Yeah, I'm hardly in a crowd. Um but this I got I have a really nice soft one that I it's the Korean kind. And it's so soft. And if a mask has to be soft and comfy, I would say this one is. So, yeah, maybe the boxy one would be better because it just would stay away from your skin. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the virus couldn't crawl through. <laughs> but, but these are really, really nice. And they kind of smell good. I don't know what it is. They don't, it's not, you know, fragrance or anything. They just have sort of a nice, um, a nice sort of fresh scent. So I feel like they're doing their job such a subtle
1: touch but you know it would matter I get yeah Yeah. there should be a nice scent too there
3: should and I wish also that they came in colors too because I tried the black one it just didn't work for me and uh,
1: well I had some really stylized ones but then when I went to the doctor they say that that's not good enough like okay
3: yeah no no you can't mess around
2: Well, for kids, they have the the ninety five ones in different colors and all kinds of colors. I bought them for my kids for school. Ooh, I wonder how good um, they are.
3: Yeah, I wonder if the largest kid one would be like a small adult one.
2: Yeah, because you can adjust um the um, the ear um so they have a tiny thing to adjust the ear um, distance. So
0: yeah. I think it might might work.
1: So this will be an interesting talk. So have we heard from our speaker?
2: Uh, he, well, you know, uh, a few days ago, and I just wrote him now an email, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because um, yeah, he specifically asked for this date today, so um should be should be coming He yeah he, he yeah he was traveling and then yeah couldn't come for the pre- like as far rescheduling for this date that's why you know if not we we will run a show oh sure <laughs> i hope not
1: <laughs> can always fall back on astrocytes <laughs> yeah
4: here,
1: here, Serena. You're here, here. <laughs> well, how's yeah, your vacation been, Good,
2: Karina? good. Very relaxing. Uh, beach today. By the end of the day, it rained a little bit, but um, it was still fine. For me, being at the beach is very relaxing. Um, it's just the ocean with waves, like the, the mm-hmm. ocean with just no noise kind of it's nice but it's not the same thing so. uh, and i like water that cools you down you know when water is just as warm as the, the rest it's like not refreshing i don't know i grew up um, probably with that water temperature that's why the portuguese yeah. atlantic coast is cold
1: it gets really warm in the portuguese no. Coast? Mm-mm. Atlanta?
2: Not that oh long. it's cold. Yeah, it's cold. Okay. Well there's Yeah, the um, Gulf Coast
1: of Florida, it just gets bathwatery in around this time.
2: Yeah, like the Mediterranean is warm too. It's really warm. Oh, I didn't like it. Like um, in the summer I went to Greece and you know, different places. I prefer going in the fall where the water is not this warm enough. So it's probably weird because I hear always tourists talking in Portugal that they complain that they thought this is like the Mediterranean. They of kind of confused that Portugal is not Mediterranean.
0: I
1: haven't been to Portugal's Atlantic coast either. Um, I would expect just from the latitude that it would be a little warmer. But, but I, I know it doesn't really work that way.
2: In the south is a little bit warmer. It's like 20 Celsius, if you're lucky. And Mm -hmm. in the north and then around the corner, so it's all Atlantic, but, uh, you know, you have the southwest tip, and then you have, and that tip you have both sides. You have the warmer Kamar side in Sagres, it's where the big... um, Sea exploration started was there at the tip. Um you have on one side your kind of calmer, a little bit warmer water, and then on the other side a lot of waves and cooler water. It's kind of interesting. Hmm.
1: Well at so at some point we'll have to go castle shopping.
0: We will. There forts. <laughs>
2: but, <laughs> there's a fort right there. <laughs>
1: I bet there's some really yeah. good castle deals.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there they are a few, I think, but I think other countries have actually more than Portugal, like more modern, you know, more... I, have, I mean, we, we have a bunch of castles, but not as many as, like, France has so many, I think, and Ireland and. Hi, Benny, how are you? Welcome. Thanks for coming.
3: Hi Benny. Hey, Benny. Welcome.
2: To to unmute is all the way on the bottom right. Hey, yep. (laughs) Um, How's your day been?
4: It's been good. Yeah, I'm uh, transitioning to a new job. So I'm finishing up at my current job. I have like about a, a week or so left. So oh wow it's been busy and um i don't know you guys heard that thank you for rescheduling since i had COVID last week everything is like kind of a bit of a mess but yeah
2: i'm glad you are better happy to be here yeah and yeah much yeah. better so glad um, and um yeah victoria was talking there's a lot of COVID, and for school for teaching she has to mask up double masking so yeah, I'm glad you're better. And what where are you going for your new job? That's exciting.
4: Um, I'm going to work for a company in Germany that produces mass spectrometers, actually.
2: Oh, cool. Where, where oh, in Germany? Oh, wow.
4: In Bremen, northern Germany.
2: Oh, perfect. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I grew up in Germany. I wasn't far away from, from there. Ah, nice. I grew up in Bochum. I don't know. All right. It's really not far from Bremen. But Bremen is so different. It's funny.
3: <laughs> I didn't know that's where. I saw David Bowie there. In Bochum.
2: Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. In the <laughs> stadium. In the... in the. Yeah. In the... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that was Balsam. where I went to my first concert, too. <laughs> I saw Grünemeyer. The first concert I ever went to was kind of, he's like a famous, but he's from Boko more originally, so
3: <laughs> That's not the guy with the shiny tooth or the light tooth, is it? The guy with the, the, the light in his tooth. Uh,
2: no, he like does German songs, but pretty good, like not that i'm not ashamed as <laughs> I you know you're like the <laughs> you went with as a 12 year old you're usually ashamed but that one i would i'm
4: not no, <laughs> would it be possible for me to update the uh link to the slide oh, of or... course.
2: yeah oh, let course. me make your moderator do you know how to share a link i
4: think so yep
2: perfect okay yeah. all right now oh, this is
3: exciting. It's a mystery link now.
1: Oh wow! Yeah, we're we gonna do something completely different.
2: <laughs> no, it's the uh, yeah. It's still. Oh, the I same see. Copy. Okay. It's just a uh, presentation. So, <laughs> oh, <I>, rhythm on. <laughs> zebra shark. <laughs> <laughs> no. <that's... laughs> um. Okay. I think we can we can fully start. So. Um yeah welcome everyone to the science society and a special welcome to benny so dr bierner and before we start with the presentation let me um, introduce you a little bit to our audience Um, benjamin bierner did his um, phd in earth sciences and he studied Climate sciences and geochemistry um, under the mentorship of Professor Ralph Keeling, and his dissertation, uh, Doctor, Ben explored several different um, applications uh, where noble gases served as indicators of natural and human-made changes in Earth climate. Um, I think this is. Uh, really interesting, and this work earned Birna at in 2021 a Chancellor's Dissertation Medal, <laughs> one of the several prestigious awards distributed annually by UC San Diego and um, and um, the Graduate Student Association to recognize outstanding doctoral research. Um, Yeah, so it's really a great honor having you here. And if it's okay with you, Victoria would ask you um, a few questions before we start with your presentation.
0: Sure, go
3: ahead. All right, thank you, Dr. Birna. Excuse me, my cat is a little bit vocal. Um, Oh, hey, Ceci Rahim, welcome. Glad to have you here. (laughs) So Dr. Birna, I'm asking these questions to bring a human aspect to your talk today to let us uh, learn a little bit about you and so my question is that we'd like to know a bit about your connection to science so if you can think back through your life to the point at which you felt that or that you noticed that you had a real strong interest in science and that could be in as early in your life as you would like to think at any moment maybe a person or an experience but if you can share that with us that would be great
4: i think i've been interested in science for a long time Um, i remember as a kid i was really into digging up rocks and um, finding fossils and that sort of thing and later on i had a very excellent mentor who was a scientist at a local Max Planck Institute, those are research institutes with a focus on immunology, who mentored me for a while, and I did some work in his lab. It was a really good experience. And from there on, it sort of went. I studied with a scientific focus, and I always had a lot of fun learning new things and ended up doing my PhD to do more science. It's just been a really good experience overall i think
3: yeah thank you so it just sounds like there's an inherent affinity and and we are very um fortunate and glad that you recognize that and so from from that point maybe from um this phd experience or or you work with the mentor at max Planck, maybe you can take us through some of the experiences in your life that have led you up to this talk today, to the research that you're doing now.
4: Yeah, of course. Um, I knew I was interested in earth science from the very start. I wanted to study something that was using math and physics, but in a more applied sense. Earth science seemed like a good fit in that context. And so I started off doing um, oceanography on like trying to understand the elemental composition of the ocean, but later on discovered that my true passion was more in the realm of climate. And I did some work on trying to understand past climate, but eventually came to realize that I wanted a climate focus on something that's more related to global warming today and helps us maybe deal with the consequences of global warming and really tackle that ongoing problem right now more directly and so i transitioned away from these past climate studies to something more recent and when i went to Scripps i thought i was going to study coral are really fascinating um, a really fascinating tool to understand climate variability because it's sort of like a tree in a sense that they produce layers also and you can understand from these layers past climate history because the composition the chemical composition of these layers relates to precipitation water temperature those sort of things um, So I I was really interested in that, but ended up not really finding the right mentor for that at Scripps and instead went into the direction of ice cores, um, which are also an important archive of old air to understand, say, past couple of thousand years of climate variability. You can understand CO2 changes from that. You can understand all kinds of trace gas compositions of the atmosphere in time from these ice core samples. That was really fascinating to me. But one of the things that people have not focused on so much is the noble gas composition of the atmosphere. And noble gases are super useful as tracers of changes in the atmosphere because they're conservative. There are no, they're no chemical reaction or, or biological interactions you need to worry about, which makes noble gases a very good indicator of physical processes. And that's been really what's been fascinating me over the last years and throughout my PhD.
3: Thank you. I'm sure that this is going to help bring us into your your discussion even more, because this is kind of like, now now we're all front-loaded and ready to go. So at this point, you are welcome to launch into your discussion. And please know that we are all here to moderate the room for when uh, following your discussion, you can have a Q&A or if you'd rather that the Q&A drives your discussion, that's that's fine too and entirely up to you. Sometimes um, guests, um, excuse me, our friends in the audience will put questions in the chat and those as well we will take care of and, and we can read them to you too so that you can just relax and enjoy uh, sharing your work with us. And, and yeah, you put your, your PDF up there, too. So, so you're ready to go. And the mic is yours. Thank you.
4: Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you, thank you very much for having me today. I, this, I think the second time that I've done anything on Clubhouse, it's quite new to me still. But it's been really fun so far. And I hope that you will find my slides all right and can follow along with those as I'm talking about atmospheric helium levels. And the story about atmospheric helium is really quite an interesting story because it's sort of the the story of a puzzle that then caused me to find an even more puzzling implication, and you'll see throughout what I'm what I mean by that. Um, as I s- mentioned earlier briefly, I think noble gases are really cool tracers, or that's an awkward for an indicator of processes that are going on in the Earth's atmosphere and on the planet. And that's because as noble gases are non-reactive, they do not have any chemical influences or biological influences. They're purely representing a physical influence on that gas. And I'm going to walk through a few of the basic terminology or that you'll need or find useful throughout the talk I hope. So we're going to do a quick geochemistry 101 for uh, the background here. On slide 3, you can see a representation of an isotope, there's for helium two isotopes, one isotope is helium-3, that's the rare isotope, um, which has two protons and one neutron, and then there's helium-4, the more abundant isotope that has Two protons and two neutrons. Both of them are chemically considered to be helium, but their different mass gives them a slightly different physical behavior, and they have very different sources and sinks because generally both of these are produced by radioactive uh, decay processes and, um, yeah, nuclear physics that are very different for those two isotopes. The other. Part that's kind of unique to my field is the use of delta notation. Delta notation is a shorthand that geochemists use to talk about very small changes without using very small numbers. And it's literally the same as a percent, just smaller. So we have two units. They're called per mil, which is 0.1%, a tenth of a percent. And then we have per meg, which is a 10,000th of a percent. This is a really small change, obviously. And it all always expressed as like relative changes. You are talking about a relative change in the helium nitrogen ratio relative to its typical atmospheric concentration, for example. So these are all anomalies expressed in these delta uh, values. I think with that we we have everything we need to get started on helium and helium in the atmosphere is set by or the concentration of helium in the atmosphere is set by a balance of the degassing of helium from the earth's crust and an escape of helium to space helium is so light that earth's gravity is not sufficient to keep a trap on the planet and we wouldn't have any Helium left on earth if helium wasn't produced in the subsurface by uranium and thorium Bearing minerals that decay in an alpha decay reaction that then produces Helium 4 is a byproduct That can escape into the atmosphere and there sort of set the balance between the slow Radioactive production and the escape to space However, humans have greatly perturbed this balance on slide 6 You see this illustrated Um, helium is found in the same reservoirs in which you find fossil fuels, in particular in natural gas. And that's because the geological settings that are suitable to trapping natural gas tend to also be suitable to trap helium. As we are extracting natural gas, accidentally we have also extracted helium from the subsurface and greatly increased the flux of subsurface helium into the atmosphere this has been a theoretical prediction made sort of in the 80s Um, but the observational evidence for this has been mostly lacking and that's because it's tricky to measure atmospheric helium levels and people have so far focused on measuring the helium isotopic ratio helium as i said has a abundant isotope helium 4 and helium-3, the lighter and less abundant isotope. And helium-4 is what's produced during the alpha decay chain, whereas helium-3 is not produced from these uranium-thorium decay minerals. Um, Therefore the idea is that the helium-3 to 4 ratio in the helium found associated with natural gas should have a low helium-3 to 4 ratio, and as this is being added to the atmosphere, the atmospheric helium-3 to 4 ratio should change. which we should be able to measure. Now I say should because so far the observational evidence for this has been pretty weak. Um, There is a graph here on slide eight that shows three different studies. They all used independent samples from each other and different measurement systems. They're completely independent studies, but they all found hardly any trend in the helium isotopic signature of the atmosphere. And you can also see that the scatter in the data is quite large. Um, that's because the helium 3 to 4 ratio is hard to measure. By the way, what you're seeing on the y-axis here is a ratio um, expressed as the ratio relative to an atmospheric standard. So yeah, it, it suffice to say that the changes are small. and. The slopes that are indicated on this are given in these per meg units that I mentioned earlier. The circle, with the, the it looks like a percent with an extra circle. That's the symbol for a per mil, sorry, yeah, that's the symbol for a per mil per year. Now we see small changes in the helium isotopic ratio of the atmosphere, but I just said our theoretical considerations suggest that the helium isotopic ratio should be changing. Um, so what's going on here? I this is sort of when I entered the field and started thinking about well, what can we do from the methods that we've applied to ice core research? Maybe we can use some of these methods and better measure the atmospheric helium change. And instead of targeting the helium three to four ratio, I think it might be easier or more precise. To measure the helium nitrogen ratio, this has two advantages. Helium four is the abundant isotope, so you're going to get more, uh, better analytical precision by avoiding helium three. And measuring the helium to nitrogen ratio has also the advantage that nitrogen levels of the atmosphere are stable. I mean, the atmosphere contains a lot of nitrogen, and so changing the nitrogen levels of the atmosphere is incredibly difficult. So the uh, nitrogen levels are stable, the helium levels are changing, and the helium-nitrogen ratio therefore expresses changes in the atmospheric levels of helium. Making such a measurement is not trivial, though, and that's typically done with a mass spectrometer. So a mass spectrometer is a tool that you can think of, if you want, as a black box where you put a sample and a standard gas in, and out comes a information about the relative abundance of different gases in that mix so it's always a statement about how different is the sample from the standard gas and as the standard gas we just use air air in 2020 let's say and then we can compare old air to it and see a change in the atmosphere composition from that you want to use the standard because it really helps keep the instrument stable it's sort of like a constant calibration that this is used for However, in these magnetic sector mass spectrometers that we use for noble gas research, you have a big problem when you're trying to measure helium and nitrogen. And that's because helium is so light compared to nitrogen that it has a very different trajectory in a mass spectrometer. In a mass spectrometer, you produce ions by bombarding a gas with electrons. These are then accelerated into a magnetic field, and a charged particle moving through an electric field is getting deflected. The deflection is proportional to its charge and its mass. And helium ended up crashing into the wall when we were measuring nitrogen at the detector. You you couldn't get helium and nitrogen into our detectors at the same time. So we needed to come up with a different way of doing these kinds of mass spectrometric measurements. And uh, the solution we found is a two-step process where we first measure the helium concentration in air and then turn that into a helium-nitrogen ratio down the line. Again, that has the advantage that nitrogen levels are stable, but other components of air may have changed. So you could, in theory, change the helium concentration of the atmosphere, for example, by increasing the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, which we have done. Now, how do you make a measurement of the helium concentration with a mass spectrometer? The idea is quite simple you make sure that there's always the same amount of gas flowing into the ion source at all times as you're switching between the sample and the standard gas. And in the ion source, the gas gets ionized and you make helium ions that are then detected at the end. So any change in the helium beam as you're switching between the sample and the standard gas reflects a difference in the concentration of helium between the sample and the standard, right, because we have put the same amount of air in at all times. To do that, you keep pressure extremely stable in a chamber, and you have a fixed flow restriction downstream of that chamber, and so that gives you a a fixed flow into the mass spectrometer at all times. Then you can subsequently measure, this is a a measurement of the helium mole fraction or the helium concentration. This is this helium over M, which once you combine it with supplementary information about CO2 concentration, argon concentration, uh, oxygen concentration, you can approximate the helium-nitrogen ratio of the atmosphere. I hope that's it with the more technical details at this point. Um, Slide 14 just summarizes, again, how much this change in method has actually improved our ability to see changes in atmospheric helium. Um, On the right-hand side, you see the helium-3-4 ratio and its uncertainty. It's about 1 per mil or 1,000 per meg, whereas the uncertainty on the new measurement is on the order of 30 per meg. A drastic improvement in precision, and you will see you need that kind of precision to really see the atmospheric changes. On the left-hand side, you see some repeat measurement of the same sample in standard gas, um, just to give you guys an idea of how precisely can we actually repeat our measurements. And it also shows how science typically goes because everything was working beautifully just in May, June of 2020. And then our instrument broke down, which they tend to do, they're finicky. And after that, I never could get the precision quite back to what it was before, but it's still remarkably precise compared to anything that had previously been measured. So how do we actually get old air? That's the other ingredient. We have a measurement method now, but we don't have any air samples yet. Well, I was fortunate enough that at Scripps, there's two sources of old air that were available to me. One are these high pressure cylinders that already look a little bit aged. It's because they are. They are dating back to the 1970s. They were collected or filled with air by Charles Keeling, Ralph Keeling's dad, who made the first measurements of the atmospheric CO2 concentrations in Mauna Loa. And for that operation, they needed standard gases. They needed um, standards that were shipped to Mauna Loa for the measurements. And some of them may have never been shipped in the first place, or some were shipped and came back for later comparison. Either way, some of those gases that were used in his operation are still around today and contain air going back all the way to the 70s. The other gas source um, is a so-called Essex tank. These are used by A-Gauge. A-Gauge is the group of people that measures atmospheric fluorocarbon levels and check for compliance with the Montreal Protocol. Those were the ones that discovered that there was illegal emissions of CFC-11 that has caused quite a lot of stir in the atmospheric science community. Now these, these measurements also need standards and, uh, their standards are stored in different tanks. They're these big cylinders of, um, are airplane cylinders, really, they were used for that originally. And, um, they're quite different in terms of how they're sealed and all that, which is great news because one of the things you always worry about when you're studying helium is leakage and permeation and things. Helium tends to permeate through anything that's not metal. And so any seal that's made between a valve, for example, and a cylinder is something you're worried about. And that's good that, in this case, we had samples from different sources. We can compare if the results agree. And they did. As you can see on slide 16, um, you can see in black these Essex tanks and in gray, the high-pressure cylinders that stem from Ralph's dad. Overall, they agree well with each other and they show an atmospheric change in the helium-to-nitrogen ratio of about 1.9 per mil, or that's uh, 0.2% over the time span of, you know, 50-ish years or so. And by fitting the uh, change in the atmospheric concentrations, From a rescaling of the natural gas emissions, we were able to estimate the average content of helium in natural gas, which turned out to be about a factor of five smaller than people had previously thought. People were expecting higher concentrations of helium in natural gas on average, um, and that had formed the basis of some of these previous um, theoretical estimates that the atmospheric helium uh, levels should be increasing. They are increasing indeed, but the increase is smaller than we previously thought it could have been. And that's why it came in very handy that the analytical precision of this measurement is much better than previous. I'm going to skip ahead to slide 18 here and come to the puzzling implications of this research. If you remember from the beginning of my introduction, people have started the hunt for atmospheric helium by measuring the helium isotopic ratio. And helium four is what is being added by fossil fuel, whereas helium three is thought to be in much smaller quantities in the helium that's associated with natural gas. However, the observations found a near zero trend in the helium isotopic ratio. And that's obviously puzzling, if helium in natural gas contains additional helium 4 compared to helium 3 that should have changed the atmospheric helium uh, isotopic ratio to uh, bring those two in agreement the only explanation is that the helium 3 concentrations of the atmosphere have also increased and now things get interesting because helium 3 is a really important resource and is used as a fuel for nuclear fusion reactors. It's however so rare that people have thought about flying to the moon to mine helium-3 where it's in much greater abundance. And um, our research seems to suggest that maybe we're missing a source of helium-3 on the planet. Maybe we don't have to fly to the moon, maybe we can find it somewhere on Earth. And this missing helium source is quite large if you compare it to the natural geological fluxes. Those are about an order of magnitude smaller. And any of the known anthropogenic fluxes. On slide 19, I summarized some of the known sources. Mostly, helium-3 is originating from... Anthropogenic helium-3 is originating from the radioactive decay of tritium. Tritium has been released to the atmosphere during nuclear bomb tests. And in the global stockpile of nuclear weapons today, there is a certain amount of tritium that decays over time with a half-life of about 12 years to produce helium-3. Neither uh, of these sources, however, are even remotely close to the um, implied helium-3 source that we, we showed from the observations. So that's puzzling, right? And I don't have an answer. We're still puzzled by this, and I hope it will trigger some future research by other people into other potential sources. One suspicion I have is that maybe natural gas actually contains more helium-3 than previously thought, and that would be obviously interesting for mining purposes, or maybe the previous measurements of the helium isotopic ratio just didn't get it quite right. So one of the future aims I have in my own research is to verify that helium four trend. And I want to conclude with a cool application of helium that I hope finally with this research will become possible. So in the next step, we are going to the helium 2.0 measurement. These are a new way of making helium measurements that are giving you even better precision and the capability to do online monitoring. So it allows you to monitor atmospheric helium levels at all times. We have tested this in the prototype now at Scripps, and we've been collecting helium concentration data from La Jolla. This is interesting because I have the hope that helium will become an indicator of human fossil fuel usage, in particular natural gas. And when people are thinking about um, verifying atmospheric emissions from observations, which will become more and more important with the agreed upon reductions in fossil fuel usage. We need somebody to verify that the promised reductions have actually taken place. One of the challenges in this process is you can see a change in the atmospheric CO2 concentrations, but you can't quite separate where this uh, change originated. Did we reduce use of coal? Did we reduce uh, emissions from traffic? Or did we reduce natural gas usage? The helium signal, however, is only found in natural gas, and so by observing changes in atmospheric helium together with CO two, I hope that we can separate the emissions from natural gas and other fossil fuels, and thereby help to contribute to um, yeah efforts of verifying reported emissions. This is where my research is going next, and yeah, thank you very much. Happy to take questions
2: yeah thank you so much for this really interesting research that's um that's really amazing like the techniques you use and also to discover that uh, surprising helium level uh, is really interesting. would be really great if that would be a future indicator um, like a real-time indicator. so do you how long do you think it would take until Helium levels are detectably different, like is it immediate? Is it an immediate reaction or does it need to rise to a certain level that you can detect? Like how much fossil fuel do you have to burn to see? Like what's the theory? I know it's not proven yet, but what would be the theory?
4: Well, um, we can right now from our observations at Scripps with this new system, we can tell, for example, differences between day and night, which here are associated with a change in wind direction. During the night, you get a, a land-coming wind, so you get the pollution signal, whereas during the day, you have a sea breeze and you get much cleaner air um, at our measuring station. And So we can really see the differences they are quite stark there. The, level of two per mil or so. So they're very well measurable. Um, Signals in helium are on short timescales, reflective of local emissions. On longer timescales, so if you think about a year, two years, the total, the signal will reflect the global emissions because obviously the atmosphere gets mixed and on a timescale of about one year or so, you homogenize the atmosphere globally. Um, I think the signal in the atmospheric sort of one year of buildup of fossil fuel is a signal on the order of 50 to 60 per meg, which means we should be quite readily able to measure changes on that uh, at that level without too much trouble with maybe half a year of observations or so.
2: Wow, that's impressive that you can even see changes throughout the day. Thank you. Go ahead, Serena. So so you left us with quite a mystery.
1: <laughs> There's a missing <laughs> mass here. Um, it, it's curious, though, and it's a substantial amount. So the helium-3, um, so just running through some questions. Uh, I mean, slide 16 has a pretty clean trend over time. Um, and it's curious that you said there's the local variations and diurnal variations, but over a, a year, year's time, you're pretty much seeing all that wash out from the from the previous year, and you've you've got more or less a. I, I'm assuming that you know you controlled for these in in taking the data on. Well, you I guess you couldn't for the past air, um, and and perhaps maybe that's some of the more variation there. But um, could you? Could you so there's the two questions: a comment on um, how clean that trend is, and how much that um, indicates, you know, um, our damning use of increases in CO two or or natural gas rather. Um, but also with the helium three, could it, it could there be an effect with the difference in mass of helium three and four and, this, and its escaping the Earth at a different rate?
4: Okay, Uh, I'll start with the Helium-3 question part. Um, Helium-3 does have a different mass and the escape velocity to space is different. So they they do have different escape velocities and and timescales of overturning in the atmosphere. However, the timescale of escape, if you just think about how long would it take to replace all the helium in the atmosphere once by having it escape and replace it with fresh helium from the subsurface, that's about a million years or so. So any of the changes we're seeing in the atmosphere on these much mm-hmm. shorter timescales, that's, yeah, that's a clear anthropogenic signal and is not a geological effect. Um, coming back to helium four. So on slide 16, right, the trend looks really clean. In fact, um, it, it's this clean because the days that these samples were taken were days with onshore wind so we're getting basically clean pacific air on those days and every time those were taken it was targeted to make sure that you get very clean air and so you don't have this diurnal variability that we see on on like yeah if we just look at variability from day to day at scripts today over like a week or so right so we're, we're looking at really clean air And um, that's why you get such a a clean increase. And when you look at back, we call this background here. It really just means the levels of pollution are the background levels that are representative of the globe at that time. Um, Yeah, and those have been increasing. And this trend in the helium atmospheric concentration really matches the emissions of natural gas so slide 17 which i skipped earlier shows the cumulative use of natural gas and natural gas use is sort of a combination of natural gas that's actually used for useful purposes and then there's some natural gas that's just getting wasted because it's flared which means typically when you extract petroleum you an oil you get to also have some associated natural gas and that associated natural gas is often just burned at the location rather than used at all, or it's allowed to escape into the atmosphere, which is even worse. And then there are some fugitive fossil emissions. These come from leaky pipelines, leaky containers, um, or non-flared gas. Um, So yeah, these are the total cumulative emissions are the sum of all these terms. And so now if you think about this solid black line um, and you compare that, that's to slide 16, what you see as the red line is just a rescaling of the cumulative natural gas emissions, assuming that at all times natural gas had the same helium uh, helium content of 0.03%. And what's interesting to me is that the accelerating... Um, emissions of uh, natural gas have matched the build-up of helium in the atmosphere. And so I think helium really is an indicator of the emissions of natural gas by humans.
1: So where did the helium-3
4: go? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. We don't know. I mean, as I said, Two options is currently what I'm favoring. One is there's probably more helium-3 in natural gas than we previously thought. It may depend on what kind of geological setting you're in. And we know that depending on where you go around the world, natural gas actually has extremely varying helium isotopic ratios. Mm -hmm. If you are in a setting like Japan, where you have a lot of influence from the Earth's mantle, you have higher helium-3 levels in natural gases. Um, so I think that's part of it. We may have underestimated how much helium-3 on average you find in natural gas, mm-hmm. or we have just had problems with the measurements before. The uh, You saw how noisy the previous observations of the mm-hmm. helium isotopic trend were. And I'm collaborating with some folks to sure. make improved measurements. And hopefully that will nail down whether the atmospheric ratio is actually changing or not.
1: Well, so that's interesting. So you, you would expect a ge- geographical variation in that, that isotopic ratio?
4: Yeah, and the variations are large. I mean, they're like, effect of 100 different depending on where you are.
1: And those equilibrate over about a year's time. So you're getting, you're getting very, like recent measurement, vari- the variations have to be very recent, right?
4: Yeah, that's right. The, once it's in the atmosphere, everything homogenizes very quickly. But obviously, once it's while it's still in in the subsurface or in the natural gas, yeah, the signatures are very different and depend strongly on the local geology.
1: I mean, I would certainly imagine as we get further along with fusion, we're going to be more and more interested in helium three and where to get it.
4: Certainly, I think that's the main interest in like understanding what's going on with Helium3 mm-hmm. and if there's really a, a source that we're missing, and if there is, we need to find it urgently because Helium3 is a very scarce resource.
1: It would be ironic we just come online with fusion and we run out of fuel. I think there was a I read something about that
0: recently, but no thank you. It was fascinating.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, if you have a question, please flash your microphones. Uh, Jamie, uh, Victoria, Dr. Shah, Den- Denise, did you flash your mic? Go ahead.
5: I did. Thanks, Karina. Um, Dr. burn thanks for the presentation. I was taking a look at some of these slides. I'm surprised a little bit that the curve on the helium from 2000 to 2020 isn't sharper. There's been a lot of. Uh, flaring and fracking and these sorts of things very cool to see the mass spectrometer I was curious if there were sensors for these species in orbit that you could cross-correlate some of your findings with and on the question of like where does the rest of the H3 go um, how does it decay like what are its daughter isotopes maybe there might be an answer there
4: So Helium-3 is stable. Helium-3 doesn't decay. It's produced by radioactive decay. Uh, Among other things, you have production of Helium-3 by lithium decay um, or tritium can decay to produce uh, Helium-3. But Helium-3, once it's produced, is stable and just sticks around. I I mean, until eventually it will escape to space. But as I said, that's a very slow process. And uh, regarding space-borne observations, I mean, I would love if that was available, but it's extremely difficult to measure noble gases, mostly because they do not have any absorption in the visible spectrum. So you can't use any of the typical laser-based methods that we use for greenhouse gases, like methane or CO2 that have been measured from space quite successfully. So there's just no technology out there at the moment to make laser-based measurements of any of the noble gases. Every noble gas measurement that's out there is done with a mass spectrometer and that means lots of sample preparation. One of these data points took me, I mean, after spending three years of developing the method, I I still took about one or two days for a single data point to just measure a single sample. And it's a slow process and it's kind of tough or has been tough to get a lot of data. But with the, the new setup, the new changes we've been making uh, and the ability to do now in situ monitoring, I think there will be a lot more data that's gonna come online from that, hopefully soon. Fascinating,
0: thank you for the answers.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, So Sirahim, Dr. Shah, Jamie, do you have questions?
0: Hi, doctor. Thank you very, very
1: much for this talk. It was really fascinating. Um, one of the questions I've got um, was you were saying you were going to help um, reconfigure the mass spectrometers to get better readings. And um, how accurate are you hoping you'll be able to get them? And, uh, and, and what kind of position are they in with? Um, and now, because clearly there's something like not as calibrated as tightly. Um, Sorry if my question's not making sense, but how how are you going to improve that? And will this optimize it completely or will there still be more configuration to do
0: as we learn more? Thank you.
4: Yeah, I mean, with the transition over now to this new system that we're doing right now, um, I think we're going to get to something like 20 per meg in 10 minutes of data which is a major improvement over where we were before. And I think there's room to go even more precisely from there. This gets technically really quickly. um, But in essence, all that matters is how much helium can you put into the mass spectrometer at any given time? Because helium is, as I said, a pretty rare gas. There's about 5 ppm of helium in the atmosphere. And so you really want to pre-concentrate the helium before you put it into the mass spectrometer to get better precision we're working in the space of improving our ability to concentrate helium in a gas stream and then put more of that gas stream into the mass spectrometer to get a more precise measurement in a shorter period of time because so far with the system that i used to make these, the, the time series i showed you those are very slow measurements you need lots of gas and it's kind of tricky to get this much gas from a lot of places and by improving the method to use less gas and be more precise i hope that we can enable measurements from sample flasks so you can go around somewhere in the world you can evacuate have an evacuated flask that you open up you take an air sample we can ship it to the lab and analyze it in the lab and start studying spatial distributions you can measure what does the signature look like of a city like can we find hotspots of Helium emissions, which I would expect near gas power plants, for example, or can we see temporal variations? And from these, as I said earlier, you can infer the emission rates, which is the ultimate goal.
0: Well, thank you very much. That's actually quite exciting to find out. Thank you. So, well, thank you so
2: much, Bernie. I mean, uh I have a question and I was just uh, wondering about the helium tree because you just... Um, are, are we talking about the diluted form of the helium tree or this type of helium tree that we are talking because it's just available and we, I mean we want to just um, extract it somehow. Does it able to put it on a metastable state or something like that for further condensation?
4: The main source for commercially used helium-3, I mean, typically what you want is pure helium-3 or pure helium-4. Um, the main commercial source for helium-3 at the moment is from uh, nuclear weapons. Those, as I said, contain tritium, and the tritium decays, and from time to time, they degas the nuclear weapons and the uh, extract the helium from that, which is then sold on the global market. But the amount of helium that's produced this way is not enough to satisfy the demand. So other sources are being considered. It's, in theory, possible to separate helium from natural gas. This is how we're getting most of our helium today for party balloons and such. But you could go one step further and separate the helium-3 from the helium-4, or you could intentionally produce tritium um, and let it decay. So those are the typical... Pathways for commercially making helium three, and then you want it in pure concentrations. It's important for cryogenic applications. It's really uh, good for cooling things. Uh, it has obviously uses in nuclear fusion reactors, but there's also applications for um, detecting radiation. I think there are some application that I hopefully know about at um, at airports. Where it helps to detect uh the smuggling, I think, of, of nuclear materials.
2: So totally different than alkali
0: atoms. Thank you for explanation.
6: Yeah, uh oh sorry, Serena. No, you go ahead. To... Go ahead. Yeah, um thank you so much, uh Benny, uh, for um this wonderful talk. Um I just wanna ask uh, looking at the graph and how uh, the the levels are really rising exponentially, um, just kind of in your opinion, what is your maybe estimate of when we're to get to a level where it might become maybe detrimental to general public health? Um, and because, you know, helium are alpha particles, so um, there is some level of risk if there's too much of it. So what do you think about that?
4: Yeah, we're lucky in that uh, helium as a noble gas actually doesn't pose any major health risks, at least not in the concentrations we're ever realistically going to see in the atmosphere. It's also not a greenhouse gas, so it's really quite harmless. Um, You don't have to worry about what helium will do to you, but you should worry about what helium tells you we are doing to the climate, how we are emitting natural gas into the atmosphere and polluting our planet that way. So it's indicative of a much bigger problem, but in itself doesn't pose any reason for concern.
6: Oh, okay. So it's more of a harbinger than a perpetrator. Okay. That's so, right. <laughs> kind of like the, yeah. Okay. It's kind of like the canary that they put in the mines. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
5: <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was just thinking on
1: your question, Cicero. It'd be funny to track the average pitch of spoken
3: language <laughs> as helium increases. Oh my gosh, I just wrote just that kidding. in the group chat. <laughs> I just we're all thinking the same wow. joke. Oh no, <laughs> um, Dr. Brenner, you probably hear that joke all the time. <laughs> Sorry.
4: Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, you need a lot of helium to really change your voice
1: so i was curious on the enriching techniques are they basically with some kind of centrifuge and selection window based on mass um or you know what what are the methods for enriching
4: yeah i think my understanding with the separation of helium-3 from helium-4 is that that would probably be cryogenic um they do have different freezing points and For the sources from nuclear weapons, there you actually get already pure helium three because only helium three is produced from the uh, decay of um, of tritium.
0: And I don't. I'm not too familiar with the abundance of tritium.
1: Um, It's. I mean, is that. uh, is that in much greater abundance or
4: no so tritium is a very heavily monitored species it's um, produced or was produced by these atmospheric nuclear bomb tests and released into the environment that way tritium typically is a found in water and so has just spread throughout our water sources globally Uh, so yeah helium from tritium is one of the major sources for it commercially. But overall, it's still not that large of a source. Um, It's comparable to the magnitude of the geological sources. And there isn't much tritium out there because tritium is not stable. It decays to helium-3 with a timescale of about 12 years. So there isn't much tritium. There isn't much helium-3 from tritium either. But it's the most important commercial source at this point.
1: So when commercial demand starts picking up for helium-3, there's, uh, they're gonna, there's gonna be some scrambling. Huh?
4: Yeah, that's why people talk about flying to the moon to mine helium-3 there. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. And I think those are the more realistic prospects. We, we could think about separating helium-3 from helium-4 in, in natural gas. And there are efforts to, I think, artificially produce tritium just so it can decay to helium-free. So you could make, I don't know exactly how that works. That's a little bit beyond me, but that you can intentionally produce tritium with the right nuclear reactor.
6: I'm slightly concerned about the possibility of people going to the moon to mine for anything. You know, I feel like, oh, uh, we've done so much to Earth, let's go see what the moon has to give us. (laughs) And then they go and go destroy the moon. I feel like people should just leave the moon alone, but um, I think there could be a way to maybe create it, just like you said, um, on Earth, instead of maybe flying all the way um, to get it from the moon. I hope they choose that option. (laughs) because um, there's so much that could be thrown off balance if we start um, chipping away at the moon. Um, And the way it is, I just, you know, it's very concerning to me personally.
0: Yeah,
4: that sounds a little scary, I agree.
0: It is an interesting question because
1: I guess the alternative would be to continue chipping away at the Earth.
6: hmm? Oh man, that is true, (laughs) isn't it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You <laughs> gotta pick your poison. Um, yeah, and 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 if it's for the purposes of of fusion, then there's um, the energy aspects, and, and of course, there's all kinds of commercial ambitions of, that uh, involve, you know, building up the moon as well. Um, would we necessarily bring it back or utilize it there? Curious little things.
6: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. But we have to think about the moon's gravity and things like that. Um, It might be a lot more difficult to work with something like that up there. I don't know, Um, at least in the way that we want to, (laughs) because we're looking at it for nuclear, um, um, nuclear energy, right? So I don't know. There's a lot to think about, definitely.
5: I'm a little bit more concerned about bringing that material back down through the atmosphere onto Earth that could be very catastrophic outcomes, potentially, in that operation. Helium? With tritium. Sorry, what were we talking
1: about? Oh, tritium. Yeah, that would be little Hindenburgie.
6: <laughs> oh, no, we were talking about helium from the moon, weren't we?
1: Yeah, I was, ta- I was talking about yeah, helium. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um,
5: Got my isotopes confused, pardon me.
1: Bringing a tank full of tritium through the atmosphere, Mach 20.
5: <laughs> what could go wrong?
0: <laughs> That's bad.
5: Okay. Um, I had another question. How mobile is that sensor station? Could it be taken on site to say a fracking operation or someplace where we might expect greater abundance?
4: With the new design, I think it becomes more portable. Um, the, we had some brainstorming sessions about maybe driving it around in a van or something like that. But um, yeah, we're still a little bit away from that. But what the next thing is that should become available in the next year or so, I hope, we're putting in an underfunding application. If that goes through, then it's ready to go. Um, is the ability to measure flask samples. And so you could go to, for example, a power plant or you could go, yeah, any any sort of setting that you think has interesting helium patterns associated with them. You go there, you take a sample in the adjacent air or maybe directly in the exhaust stream from the power plant, take that back from the, to the lab and you can analyze it there.
2: Right. Sorry, I was thinking about whenever they open up a new ancient tomb somewhere in Egypt (laughs) to go there and measure it. (laughs) I don't know. um,
4: Yeah, does anybody know how well those are sealed? I I mean, I know people talk about how that air is like really old and stagnant and then the curse of the mummy gets you, but I don't know how well sealed that actually is.
6: Uh, Kevin, hi, welcome to the stage.
7: Hello, thanks for having me up. I had a question I came in just moments ago and heard um, helium-3 tritium, helium-3 coming from tritium. Um, only d- having discovered helium-3, I don't know, about 10 years ago or so or 12, um, why is there such an amount, the amount that there is on the moon? And if you already discussed that, sorry, but I don't know the answer to that. Why is there so much of it there? Thanks.
4: Um, it's my understanding that one of the major there's two sources of helium three, two major sources on Earth. One is from geological sources and the other is from interactions with cosmic ray and other solar wind and those sort of things and the same bombarding particles that hit Earth are much less well shielded on the Moon and so I I think um, that's That's the thought, but I'm not sure.
7: That's
5: what came to my mind is that it's solar deposition or some sort of result of you know the moon doesn't have an atmosphere; it has a different surface composition, so all those factors would play into it.
7: Have they qualified how much helium three is on the moon? They, the whoever, would would do that.
2: Well, the. I think the thing is that the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, so our atmosphere filters out helium 3, but solar flares constantly spill out, would be enough helium for us, but our atmosphere just filters it out.
7: Okay, so another way, since the moon doesn't have that atmosphere, so it's. Uh, accumulation is probably greater per year. Is there anyone modeling its accumulation of helium-3 that anyone knows of?
5: There are soil samples from the planet. They were actually just, um, I think it took about 20 or 25 years or so, um, whatever the time frame was. They just opened them, I think it was in the last year or two, I want to say the last year. So I don't know if those findings are public yet, but there are other um, geological There's other geological
4: data that might be able to speak to that. Yeah, I don't have much to add, except that I think it's not the atmosphere of the moon that's lacking. It's the magnetic field that is really important for these charged particles.
6: Yeah, that's definitely another thing as well. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, when I was talking about throwing off the moon, um, and if you keep mining these things off the surface of the moon, it could definitely throw off the magnetic field of the um, this body and could throw off its orbit. Like there's so many things that could happen. So that's kind of some of the things that I was thinking about as well, um, if we decide to go chipping away at the rock.
1: <laughs> it's interesting though, do you think if it's depositional, that's somewhat of a renewable source? Um, provided that we don't overmine it and just deplete it faster than it's being deposited. It would be really curious to understand what those what those rates are.
7: So then my question is, if the cosmic rays from our star are producing or transforming teridium into helium-3, is that a correct assumption, first of all? And if it is, what is the rate of flow of creation of helium 3 on the moon
5: we're gonna have to ask an exo geologist
0: (laughs) yeah sorry i don't know
6: but that would be cool to know though definitely
5: oh if it ever comes up in one of my space rooms i'll see if i can grab the answer from somebody
4: i just googled it and found an article that says that concentrations i believe to be about 20 to 30 parts per million in the uh, luna soil 20
6: to 30 parts per million, you say
4: per billion oh, yes billion. that's oh, wow. a huge amount wait i
0: heard that right, right? that was billion
6: not million
2: Yeah, it's enough for 10,000 years of fuel supply. So,
6: <laughs> it should be good. Yippee!
5: <laughs> Let's go.
2: <laughs> if we don't remind
0: it that is
5: Wait, so I'm curious. Um, how much do you think of H3 or 4 can be recovered from nuclear waste sites like Hanford or all the stockpiles of depleted uranium and other radioactive materials. Do we really got to go to the moon for this? Or can we do this like clean up the environment here at the same time?
4: There's a one project in that direction that um, I was reading about, which is uh, in heavy water reactors, there is a production of of tritium from the heavy water. And that's currently not being used, but people have talked about utilizing the tritium that's being produced in these reactors and then decays to helium-3 as an as a potential additional source of helium-3. For other waste products, I, I think it's not every nuclear reactor produces tritium. In fact, I think only these heavy water reactors really do. Um, there are some places where you have lithium in nuclear reactors also that then can somehow produce some helium-3. But I, I think the main thing is a decay of tritium. So heavy nuclear water reactors and their waste material is where you would be looking.
2: So in this, um, why, uh, was it Wyatt uh, article? No, in this vice article, it says that, you know, that talked about your research, it says that maybe your um, helium-4 uh, rays in the atmosphere could be also an indicator for an indirect measurement of helium-3. Helium so was that, was that correct, how, how the vice article um, stated that?
4: Let me pull up the article. I haven't actually read it. Um, generally speaking, I think helium... Well, if you have reliable measurements of the helium isotopic ratio and you have good measurements of the helium nitrogen ratio, then you can infer the helium-3 change of the atmosphere. That's true. Um, I think right now, we don't have um, precise enough helium isotopic measurements to really do this on like a very high temporal resolution. But we can go back to the samples that I used for this study and remeasure them with improved precision. I think the, it's realistic to, to improve the precision by a factor of maybe five to 10. I have some ideas for that. And at that point, I think you should be able to see a trend that you can trust a little bit more. And the good thing is that the samples we use have been carefully vetted. And that's always a concern. Some of the previous work on helium isotopic ratios has used things like old porcelain or slags from, from ovens and things like that. And I just, I don't trust those very much because helium just comes out of things so quickly and it's really hard to keep helium contained properly, especially over longer periods of time.
2: So in case that would be true, right, would there be a way to use the rice in the atmosphere for fuel? Like would there be a way to capture it out of that you know, the air, basically to use it for nuclear fusion?
4: I don't think you can directly get it out of the atmosphere that's just energetically very unfavourable. Instead you would try to find where the sources are and if you have an idea where the sources are, you can find those should be more enriched in Helium-3. And at that point, yeah, you can do some kind of cryogenic separation or something like that to, to get it out.
2: Oh, that's where the bottles come in, right? So you go to the different exactly. places. Where ah, very good. Oh, wow, that would be amazing, wouldn't it, if you could directly harvest it? Before we stop all,
4: yeah. The uh, gas we, from and... <laughs> from uh, the calculations that I did in this paper, we estimated that about fifteen percent of all helium is actually getting used. So when people talk about the helium shortages, which come up from time to time, there there might be more uh, potentially usable gas streams also that could be commercially viable. The, the tricky part is. To make it commercially viable, to extract helium from a natural gas stream, you need fairly high concentrations, and not many fields provide such high concentrations of helium in the gas stream. However, if you're also making liquid natural gas, the requirements suddenly become much easier, because when you make liquid natural gas, you already have cooled down your natural gas very substantially, and the helium is found in the non-condensable fraction. And so you basically have already partially purified and separated your helium and so maybe in the realm of uh liquid natural gas production is where where we could actually get helium four and then maybe separate helium four and helium three also
2: yeah that would be really helpful that would be really interesting so are you going to still continue because you said you're going to start to work for a company are you still going to be working also on this type of projects? Or um, is it more like a different research that you're starting?
4: For now, uh, it's a pretty large change of topic for me. I'm going to go into life science-based mass spectrometry and make measurements of proteins. To understand diseases which i also find a really fascinating topic and i just really love mass spectrometers i think they're super cool and interesting tools for all kinds of science there is um as i said we are working on getting more funding to continue this work this will be with my supervisor Ralph Keeling. he will continue this onward and i may come back to this at a later stage in my career yes
2: Well, if this would work, wouldn't this be like a lot of money potentially? Wouldn't this be like a good (laughs) company actually in the future uh, for energy supply? I mean, it's still pretty adventurous, right? Because you don't know if it works at all. Like you don't have proof of concept yet, but shouldn't it?
4: the commercial interest is once you find where the helium three comes from like if we had a system that would allow us to show people where the helium three sources are that they should be looking at that would be very interesting of course but we're not quite there yet um i think you need something that's fairly rich in helium and has a fairly high helium three to four ratio that would be sort of the best and maybe with the the other efforts that we're working on to make measurements of the helium isotopic ratio, once we have actually figured out how to do that more precisely and then get flask samples, maybe we can start looking for atmospheric anomalies in specific places. So, yeah, unfortunately, I have been contacted by by mining companies about this that are interested in, in finding things, but I think we're still sort of a step away from actually being able to help Pinpoint sources of helium 3. For helium 4, we're definitely a lot closer.
2: Well, it's definitely something, you know, really interesting and hopefully, you know, really helpful for the, our future of clean energy. So um, I cross fingers for everything you do. <laughs> And you know, that you get a lot of uh, support and funding and for all the different works you do. And um, yeah, I wanted to check if somebody has maybe a last question because we are going now almost one hour and 15 minutes. So um, yeah, please let flash your microphone if you have a last question. Not to let um, Benny <laughs> rest again. Uh, and
1: uh, get back to his life. One final question, Um, and I'm going to go back to space again, but um, asteroids, is there um, an expectation of, you know, helium on asteroids in, in the context of, you know, fusion, you know, possibly using, Local energy there, uh, as opposed to just mining the water and spending it. Or
4: I don't know, is the short answer. The longer answer is I'm guessing yes, because of the same reasons that you find helium on mm-hmm. on the moon. Mm-hmm. You would probably expect the same implantation to, uh, yeah, give you elevated helium three levels on comets.
2: Yes, Serena, I just checked that because before, I mean, I just heard the news about the White Uh, dwarf, and they have a helium core base.
0: Oh, (laughs) very cool. Great question.
6: Loved it, Serena. Thanks for asking it.
2: Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this wonderful talk and this really interesting presentation and answering a lot of our questions. Uh, Again, we wish you all the best for your future and um, thank you so much everyone for asking all these wonderful questions. And um, yeah, maybe you'll come back with a proteomics (laughs) paper in the future. Uh, using, you know, your um, favorite methods. So it will be interesting to see what you do in the future. Hopefully you come back one day.
4: Yeah, it would be my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Bye.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much.
7: Thank you, you, doctor. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And um, just a quick um, overview over the week. Tomorrow morning uh, we'll have Dr. Maldonado talking about food addiction vulnerability and uh, microRNA signatures. On Thursday we'll have Dr. Spontek coming back. Um, he will talk about this self-disinfecting anionic polymers that are currently ready being used by in the industry. So it's a relatively not so dense a week, because I'm on vacation. <laughs> but, um, and then, yeah, next week we'll have Dr. Chang and the group talking about continuous Bulls einstein condensation and a book discussion also on Monday, July 11th with um, The Global Brain with the author, uh, Howard Bloom. So, um, yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you so much, Benny. I wish you all the best. Don't stress out too much in the last week. And um, yeah, I hope your transition back to or to Bremen will work out well. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you, you.
0: Cheers. Bye, everyone.